Uh, we have a special guest with us this morning. Many of you, if you've been a part of Cornerstone uh, before COVID, you will recognize David Balabakubo. He is uh, one of our good friends, and he's a pastor of an incredible church in Uganda, rural Uganda, also the founder of an incredible school. Um, he's provided dozens of homes for widowed uh, Women in his area dug dozens of wells. I mean, if you want to make a difference in life, don't compare yourself to David, all right? Because he is, he's surpassing all of us. But he, we're so glad to have him here today. Um, and he gets to tell us a little bit about his story because his, his ministry is amazing, but his personal story might even be better. So we're going to get to hear from him. Welcome. Amen. Good morning, Cornerstone. I'm Pastor David from Uganda, and uh, this is my story, how I came to encounter Christ. I was born and raised in a Muslim family, in a broken community of alcohol, witchcraft, worshiping idols. And even our home, we were worshiping, we had a spiritual tree, we were worshiping. But glory to God, Jesus encountered me at the age of 16. In the Muslim faith, where I was, where I was raised in the Quran, we believe the Quran says that in the month of Ramadan, that, that's during the fasting month of Ramadan, that whatever you dream or whatever you vision of, just do it without any consultation. So I was on the 15th day of fasting, I got a, a little sleep and uh, I got a dream. I saw Jesus on the cross. And afterwards, I saw an empty cross and something white, which I believe that it was snow after coming to America. Because in Uganda, we have no snow. <laughs> <laughs> but something white covered the, the cross, and uh, a loud voice came out of that, calling my name three times. I was called Ali, that uh, I chose you to be my servant, but go to a Christian born-again church and believe me. It was hard for me because I believed that the devil is the one speaking to me. But it took a while. The voice continued coming in. And I didn't know how I went to the church. I just realized later, coming to my senses, when I'm kneeling before the pastor, confessing Christ to be my savior. After that, again, another big story started of persecution. Whereby, during that time, I was in a secondary school. And our education system in Uganda, when you are doing S4 or high school, the last grade, the father or the mother has to come and sign for you a form so that you can qualify to do the national examination. So during that time, because I was hiding for three years when my family doesn't know that I'm a Christian, but at school I had grown in faith and I was preaching the gospel, whereby the students and the staff of the school, they started calling me a pastor. So during that time, my father came, visited the school to sign for me. And uh, the security asked him, whom are you visiting? He said, I'm visiting Ali. The security said, are you visiting Ali, our school pastor? <laughs> said, no, 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 I've never produced a pastor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they said, okay, sit there. Let us call the Ali we have here. So... Calling us, I saw my father in a distance, and I ran to welcome him. Then the scripture says, is that one your son? That one is our school pastor. <laughs> so it was the pain that my father denied me from the gate. What is sad that even what he had brought to me, he gave it to another Ali. I hired another parent 
to sign for me the form. It is sad that I was to be in school for a month, finishing the exams. Then going back home, I had no place because I was denied from the family, whereby one night when I went back, I thought it was a joke. I found a big meeting, and the question was, are you back to Muslim faith, or you are still a Christian? I said, I'm still a Christian. I cannot deny Jesus. And that day, I was beaten. I, I don't know. I cannot even remember the stocks I got. Then I ran away, and the following day, I came back knowing that maybe they were joking. You know, because of poverty, we had small houses. So when you reach 13, you were a boy, you build your own hut, a grass-hatched house. So I had my grass-hatched house outside. And uh, when I came back the following night, I, walk, I walked straight to the house, uh, not, not knowing that they were seeing me. And at the night, it was close to midnight, I got another dream. When someone was saying, move from the house and go to a nearby church and sleep there. I said, what? It is close to midnight. But because Jesus encountered me in the dream, I was respecting the dreams a lot. So I had to move. And the church, the nearby church, was like nine kilometers away. So I walked. Coming back in the morning, I found my house burnt. They locked and they burnt. Seeing me, they, they were shocked. I said, we knew that you, we, we, we know, we were celebrating that you were dead. We thought that you were in the house. Then day I got a journey to go to Kampala, where I walked for almost 30 miles. I slept on, uh, on a mango tree for three days, and uh, I found a, a truck transporting charcoal to Kampala, and I prayed that you man take me to Kampala. He said, I'm going to take you, but you have to become a charcoal, a charcoal bag, because I'm not allowed to take people under the truck, on the truck. So I said, okay, he gave me the sack, where I dressed in myself and I became a charcoal. He said, when you see the traffic officers, you have to lie down like a charcoal. So I, took, I went to Kampala as a charcoal bag. <laughs> That's where I got an opportunity to join the, uh, the, the, the Bible school. And after getting my first degree in theology and leadership, God spoke to me again to go back to Kamoli, which was another sad moment. It was not a place I thought that is for me to go back, but I accepted after two years of denial. I accepted, and now, going back to that broken place, praise the Lord that even my father now, I'm the pastor of my father. I'm the pastor of my family. Uh, in that broken place now, God has established a church of over 500 people. In that broken place, God has established a school which is taking care of over 500 children. In that broken place, after accepting the call to go back, we have so far now built 85 houses for uh, homeless widows and uh, single mothers. And uh, 46 wells of water have been established. Glory to God, I thank you for your partnership. Thank you for being a loving church. That's David. May God bless you. Thank you, David. Hey, I'll just, uh, the first time I went to Uganda, I was teaching at, they hosted a leadership conference, and I got done with my message, and David was standing next to me just like this, translating, and I looked at him, and I said, all right, I'm done, and he looked at me, and he started laughing, he goes, oh, 
No, you are not. Keep going. Because in Uganda, you preach for a very, very long time. David will be in the lobby after the service. You're welcome to go say hi to him. And he's speaking to some different groups while he's here this week. But uh, he's got a lot more amazing stories. And I'd encourage you to grab some time with him. If you ever get a chance to go on one of our trips to Uganda, I know our high school students are going in March, but we have other ones that go from time to time. Uh, It's worth it. It's amazing. I've gone a couple times. I've taken my two oldest boys and um, made a promise to my younger boy, so I'm going at least two more times, David, because Levi and Jude get to go. So, all right, uh, I'm going to jump into our message today, and if you haven't been with us uh, for a few weeks, just want you to know that we're in a series with a focus on prayer, and each week we are highlighting a different type of prayer or a different way of praying, Um, and what we're wanting you to do is we're wanting you to just practice these things. And we're wanting these prayers to become more and more a part of your life and part of your language and your your relationship with God. This is important because there are certain times in our life when we don't know what direction to go. Or as Aaron shared last week, uh, we, we don't know what decision to make. We're in a tough moment. Certain things are taking place. And we need God to guide us through these things. And so we're calling this series Wayfinder Prayer as Our Guide. When life is disorienting, when it's out of control, we don't know which way to go, we don't know what direction to go in, God will use prayers in our life to help us move through those difficult times. And the title for this series is really inspired uh, by a set of songs that were sung long ago by a certain group of people. And so in the 19th century, we all know about the the plague and the evil of slavery that was taking place in our country. But if you were to visit one of those plantations back then, during the day, you would have heard familiar songs sung day after day by those slaves working in the fields. Songs like, Go Down Moses, or Follow the Drinking Gourd, Sweet Chariot, Wait in the Water, all songs that were set to memory that were passed on from one generation to another. Now, the reason these songs were significant is the songs were used to communicate stories, and they're used to communicate uh, values that were meant to be shared from generation to generation. And because school wasn't allowed and reading and writing was prohibited for slaves, this is the way people learned and passed on information. But embedded in these songs was something else. It was secret instructions and guidance on how to escape. So for a runaway slave, the songs would be the things that were kept in their heart, put to memory, that would guide them towards freedom. So just imagine, this picture just haunts me, a runaway slave alone by themselves in the wilderness at night, and all they have to guide them is a song that has been put in their heart. Now, prayer can be the same way. It can act the same way. When we don't know what else to do, we pray. And we pray certain ways, and God reveals certain things to us. And so um, if you've been following along, you you may enjoy the prayers that we've been sharing with you. And so you can text the word renewal today to our text line. You can see it behind me and you'll get a copy um, uh, of the prayer that I'm teaching on today, the prayer of renewal. But before I jump into that, I want to put this prayer along with every prayer in context, specifically for a group of people. So we know here at Cornerstone on any given Sunday, there are people that are in this room that This whole thing is new to them. Church might be weird and new. Faith is new, which means prayer is certainly new. Sorry about my microphone. I lost my tape. See if I can fix it. There we go. 
So um, the context for all of this is that God desires a relationship with us, and so prayer can be confusing. You wonder, really, is there someone else that's listening? Now, there's one story that God has shared with us, some true events that God has shared with us that make sense of any attempt to pray, any desire to hear from God or to ask for his guidance or today to pray for other people who do not yet know him. And that story that puts puts every prayer that we have into its proper context is the story of the gospel. And so I want to start with that today. The gospel is good news. And it's uh, the good news of Jesus. And the reason it's good news is because Jesus is a gift to everyone. And he's a gift that every person is meant to know and to receive and to enjoy. Jesus, um, he lived in such a way that his life was a gift to those that were around him. He was full of wisdom and joy and patience, and love, and power, and perspective. And because of all those things, people were drawn to Jesus. Those that were on the outside, looking in socially and spiritually, were drawn to Jesus. Those that were sick, those that needed healed from something, or from uh, demon possession, different things that were haunting them, they would come to Jesus because he had the power to heal. But Jesus was also loving. He cared for those that were around him. It wasn't just that Jesus was there to display his power. Jesus was working in their lives to show them that God loves them. And so his life was this incredible gift. He showed us the way to God. Jesus showed us a new version of humanity. Here we go. Here's the trick of why the microphone stays and doesn't stay. Medical tape on our necks. Thank you, John Stewart. That was painful for me and probably painful for you to watch. But Jesus is an incredible gift. The way he lived shows us a new way to be human, one that's fully connected to God the Father. But Jesus didn't just live to to provide a better way and show us a better way. Jesus literally came to die. And so we're told in the Gospels, and we're also told in the historical record from different Roman historians that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross. And the reason that he was crucified is that there was a debt that needed to be paid for every person. And on the cross, God fully satisfied the debt of sin so that we no longer have to carry that burden or pay that price. You know, for modern people, this is kind of a hard notion to accept, but there are certain things about sin that we do already understand. Modern Americans, uh, we, we have an easy time accepting that the world is broken. All you have to do is watch the news or read the headlines and hear about racism or the exploitation of women and children or war and we just shake our head and say the world is not as it should be. It needs saved in some regard. But what's hard for us is to say that that same brokenness, that same corruption, that same selfishness that's causing all the pain in the world, that it's inside of us. That can be hard for people to admit. The Bible calls it sin. And a simple way to think about sin is sin is just not saying yes to God. It's not just saying no to God. It's not saying yes to his truth and his way. And we're all guilty of it. So Jesus' death is this incredible gift because on the cross he was thinking of every one of us. And so that's why in John 3, 16, Jesus says this, so God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His death is inclusive. Often Christians and the church gets accused of being exclusive and that is often true. We can be exclusive, we can divide uh, uh, for reasons that that grieve God, but I'll tell you what, Jesus is not exclusive. He is inclusive. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but experience and have eternal life. 
So his death is a gift. But the life of Jesus after his death is also a gift. So after that crucifixion, Jesus was laid in a real tomb. And there was a real boulder that was rolled over it. And Jesus was literally dead and he was wrapped in burial clothes. But three days after his death, his dead, cold body wrapped in those burial clothes woke up. And his lungs began to fill with air again, and he began to breathe. And his heart began to pump again, and his body warmed up. And he opened his eyes, and he stood up, and he took off those clothes of death, and he walked out of the tomb. And ever since that day, Jesus has been revealing himself to people just like us, saying, hey, not only do I want to share my death with you, but I want to share my new life with you. Eternal life. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, they're trying to describe this incredible mystery of the resurrection and what it means for us. I, I love the significance that's here in the passage. It says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is, inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Because of the resurrection, you have been promised many things that God is delivering on right now. And because he's alive, he can continue to bless you with his life. He'll continue to share wisdom and loving messages with you. And that's why we pray. We pray because someone is listening. We pray because someone made a way for us to never be disconnected from God. So when we pray, it's not like casting a wish out into the universe. It's not believing in fate. It's not trusting in karma. It's believing that there literally is someone on the other line listening to us who wants to share his truth with us. And so knowing him is the beginning of, of intimacy with God. Knowing Jesus is the beginning of allowing prayer to guide you in your life. So over and over again, especially in the New Testament, there is this, this elevation of Jesus as the most important relationship any person can have. In Romans 10, 13, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Speaking of calling on the name of the Lord through Jesus. There's nothing more important in your life than joining your life to him. And if you've been listening and prayer doesn't quite make sense to you, but you have not yet joined your life to Jesus, this is the start. And for many people, this isn't, there's not a formula, there's not a way to begin your relationship with Jesus that's right and wrong. We're just told that we're simply meant to have faith and trust in him. But a lot of times people begin their relationship with Jesus with a prayer. And it can be a simple prayer like this. You can say, Jesus, I trust you. I need you. Forgive me. Fill me with your presence as he's promised to give you the Holy Spirit. That you may experience unity with him. And then lastly, you just give your life to him. I give my life to you. May I serve you. These simple phrases reflect a heart that's been turned towards God. A heart full of faith in God. And I'll tell you what, you, you don't even have to have a lot of faith. You just need to have a little bit of faith. Because what we know of, of Jesus is uh, he'll take a little bit of faith because he is great. He will take a little bit and he will change your life. What's more important than the amount of faith we have is the object of our faith. And in this case, it's Jesus. And so if you've not yet joined your life to him, I'd encourage you to do so. Now saying that, um, I wanted to share that with those in the room that are not familiar with the gospel yet. But I also wanted to highlight that really, really good news for the rest of us. So many of you in the room have been a Christian for a very, very long time. And you heard that story long ago, and you put your trust in Jesus, and you've been journeying with him ever since. And I just want to remind us today of how beautiful that is, the changes that have occurred in your life. But 
the message that we have today is that that beauty, the beauty of the gospel and how it gives us joy and changes our life, it also puts inside of us a burden. Because we've been touched by God, forgiven by God, we experience unity with God. We have a burden that other people in our life that we love would experience the same joy, the same relationship, the same love, that their hearts would be set free in the ways that ours have been. And so what happens is when you begin to journey with Jesus, he immediately turns your eyes towards others, your attention towards others, and we're burdened with those in our life that do not yet know him. And so that's where the prayer of renewal comes in. The prayer of renewal is also known as a prayer of revival or contending prayer in other writings. Tyler Stanton, in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Saints, says that there is a type of prayer, what we're talking about today, that births new life, spiritual life. So there's a type of prayer that leads to life, new life, in every regard. So for those of you that have walked with Jesus for some time, just by show of hands, I'm interested, how many of you would credit your relationship with Jesus, you would credit someone in your life that prayed for you faithfully that you would come to know him? Maybe it's a contending parent or a contending grandparent or a friend or a spouse. Raise your hand if you know of someone that prayed for you that you might come to know him. Absolutely. I mean, that's evidence enough that today the prayer that we're introducing to you is worth praying, that we ask God to work in people's life that they might come to know him. You know, I grew up in a home where my mother uh, loved Jesus and followed him, and my dad was not interested and so Sundays was the most divided time of the week in my family's home. Dad would stay home. Mom would pack me and my two brothers up and we'd go to church and then we'd come back and we had these experiences that we felt like we couldn't share with my dad. It was tough. But you know what my mom did for 22 years? She prayed for my dad over and over and over again. I came to faith when I was 12 years old in seventh grade and immediately, I was burdened the fact that my dad did not know Jesus, and I prayed for him for 10 years. And a call that I'll never forget, I was a freshman in college, I was on the phone with my dad, and my dad starts, you know, he's a rascal, he starts saying, yeah, I, I believe all this stuff, I believe in Jesus, I guess I need him. And I said, Dad, you're a Christian. And he said, well, probably, but don't tell your mother. <laughs> See, God can work through our prayers, but often it takes a lot of time. So today I want to take you to a story that occurs in 1 Kings chapter 18, where a number of people, we'll use the word, they're saved. Their spiritual blindness is taken away, and they see God for who he is, that he's real, that he's true. They turn from the other things that they're following and trusting in, and they return to God, okay? It's a story of renewal. It's not just a story of personal renewal. This is a story of a country being renewed. So the story is in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. And the context of this is that once again, the nation of Israel, because they had been living through a season of peace and prosperity, uh, their life was full of comfort, they did what most people do. They began to drift away from faith in God. And they began to trust in more tangible things like people, or politicians, or money, or power. 
And generation after generation was moving in this way, so much so that the entire nation, you could describe, was spiritually lost. And at the center of all of this deception was this evil king and his wife, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Uh, they, they had uh, promoted the worship of Baal, which was a, a pagan god. You can read about Baal in lots of Eastern cultures. Baal is connected with rain, which is connected with, with life and renewal. The prophets of Baal were everywhere in Israel. So just think of it. Like, you know, a lot of people don't know a lot about the Bible or a lot about the, the ancient Israelites, but what we do know is that they're somewhat connected to this one God, and their fidelity to this one true God was the thing that made them unique. So this country now is worshiping other gods and their, their, their uh, priests are throughout the country. And to make matters worse, the government has ordered that all of the spiritual ministers in the country that were faithful to the God of the Bible be found and killed, executed. It's so bad that um, a few faithful priests actually gra- grab the priests that are left and they hide them in caves. So all of this is terrible. And fugitive number one, on the list of the government, Ahab and Jezebel to find and to kill is this prophet, the great prophet Elijah. And the reason they want to go after Elijah is because you can read in chapter 17, they're blaming Elijah for this great big famine that has taken place for many years. So when you get to chapter 18, verse 1, and you can see it behind me, it says this, after a long time in the third year, so over two years of famine, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. God is telling him that the time of famine is over, but God wants to do something amazing in the lives of people. He wants to do something even better than bringing rain. He wants to do something better than even ending uh, this famine and ending the hunger and ending the thirst. He wants to do something spiritually in their life. And so God tells Elijah, I want you to set up a showdown, a match with the prophets of Baal. My God, Elijah would go to them and say, my God versus your God. And so this is the scene. I wanna read it, starting in verse 22. It says this. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set, not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, that is the true God. So it's the test. Then all the pre- people said, that would be good. Wouldn't it be good for God just to show himself like that? Just to prove himself? Of course they say that would be good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling or playing Xbox. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of, evening, of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one. 
paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one from each of the the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench trench large enough around it to hold two seas of of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering of wood. So remember, he's needing to light the fire. He says, douse the sacrifice in water during a drought. Seems reckless. Verse 34, he says, do it again. Then it says, do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. So take, get the picture This thing is soaked and drenched and there's water around it. At the time of sacrifice, and this is a reference to the evening sacrifice that would have been taking place in the temple if Israel would have been worshiping God the way that he had instructed them. So at that time, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. He talked to God. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people may know that you, are, you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. He's praying a prayer of renewal. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. In other words, it's true. Elijah is right, the Lord, he is God. An amazing scene. One of those special stories were given in the Bible. God had been working in their life. This famine is there. The famine needs to end. Rain is going to come. But before this, God wants to make a display of his power and love and attention for the people. So Elijah prays and God moves and people are saved in a moment. New life takes place. Now there's a few things that are present here and I want to mention three of them. Before Elijah prays and as he's praying and as he's waiting for God to do amazing things, he's holding on to something called spiritual perspective and I'll describe it in a moment. He's also holding on to strong faith in the power of God. He believes that God can do impossible things. And lastly, he is exercising through this whole scene the raw determination to keep praying. And I'm going to show you that in a few places. So first of all, Elijah is using spiritual perspective. Isn't it true that, I mean, hopefully this is true. The older we get and the more perspective we have in our life looking back, we get wiser. Isn't that true? So you can look back on your life and say, yeah, that was a mistake because now I've lived through the consequences. Or we we grow in, uh, perspective gives us, we become more prudent. We're able to see how certain things connect in life. Uh, Another thing perspective does for a person is it allows us to see the things in life that really, really matter. I mean, you hear this all the time. You hear people uh, getting ready to pass and they say, you know, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. That's perspective about what matters most in life. A spiritual perspective is what Elijah has here. He understands the things that matter most. And of course, feeding this nation, of course, the flourishing of this nation matters to God. But what matters most in this moment is that their hearts have turned away from God and they don't know him. 
And so first and foremost, the most important thing that needs to take place here is that this spiritually dead nation, these spiritually dead people need to come back to God. A nation cannot be renewed without something first happening in a person's heart. And so Elijah has this perspective. He also knows that when life gets easy and comfortable, we tend to drift away. And we trust in easier things. Things that don't take as much faith, things that don't take as much conviction. And that's, so that's why, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we go through many weeks trusting in our abilities or our job or our wealth or our health more than in God. We all do this. Spiritual perspective helps us see that. And so it reminds us that we're meant to be dependent upon God. Nothing matters more. And so Elijah here, he's not, he's not praying for this famine to happen so that people will suffer. He's not doing that. He's praying for the famine so that the foundation on which these people have built their lives will be shaken to the core and they might come back to God. That's the point. See, he's not happy about people not being able to grow their crops or, or feed their family, but he knows that the spiritual renewal needs to take place in their life and God can use this. And so Elijah has this spiritual perspective. Elijah also has a huge view of God. He knows that God can do amazing things. He understands that nothing is impossible for God. There's no such thing as too bad or too deceived or too angry or too wounded. Let me say this all the time. Because of the way they grew up or the things that they are around, they'll never turn to God. I mean, we all think those thoughts because we run in, you know, like they're people we love. But the truth is, no one's ever too far from God. No one's ever too bad. No one's ever too deceived. No one's ever too angry or hurt or wounded. God is mighty to save, as it says in the prophets. And you can count on one thing, and Elijah is counting on this, that God is constantly orchestrating our lives to bring us to the place that we see him and know him and our hearts are turned towards him. And so God uses famines in people's lives to get their attention. And God uses the disappointment in trusting in other things that don't really serve us. They don't, they don't provide what they promised us. Like if you're a young person and right now the only thing you're working to build in your life is your career, you will eventually be disappointed that that career will not love you back. It's great to have a good career. It's wonderful. But if that's what you're living for, you will be crushed because it won't love you back. God will also use powerful and miraculous moments like the one that happens there on the altar to get your attention or to get people's attention. I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase the providence of God, but we see it here in the story. The providence of God is just the term that's used to describe the careful attention that God takes in every person's life to use everything in their life to reveal himself to them and to move his purposes forward in their life. So what that means is God has been present in every moment of your life. He's never not looked at you. He loves you. You've always belonged to him. But the providence of God tells us that he's carefully orchestrating our lives and using everything that happens to bless us this way. It's amazing. I wonder if years later the Israelites looked back on all of this and they lived through this terrible famine and said, you know, I see what God was doing. See, God is mighty to save. He's, he's moving heaven and earth to bring this about in our life. 
Here's an example of just the incredible rescue that I think takes place anytime someone's heart turns towards God. How many of you remember in the summer of 2018, it was, it was in the headlines for about three weeks, that Thai soccer team that was stranded in the, in the cave? Remember that story? Okay, if you are not familiar with it, you need to, you need to watch some movies and documentaries about it because they're all coming out now and they're amazing. This claustrophobic can't watch them though. I mean, it's just an incredible story of these 12 boys and their coach being rescued. So they, they were hanging out one day and they went to explore a cave that was just a, a common place that people would go recreate in. But while they were inside the cave, it began to rain and the limestone rock uh, that made up this mountain just, you know, the water just seeped through it and it began to fill up the cave and it filled up low spots within the cave, blocking the boys' exit. And it didn't take long for people to figure out that the boys were probably stranded in the cave because no one could find them, their parents couldn't find them, and the bikes were all there at, at the front of the cave. It took over a week for expert divers just to find the boys inside the cave. They were two and a half miles inside the cave. Most of those two and a half miles, uh, the cave was completely flooded with water. And so you, it's, uh, it's really interesting. It was, a, it was mainly a group of English divers who just did this as a hobby. They went cave diving in dark places. Like that was their hobby. That's fun to them. And there's not a lot of them. So these expert divers found out and they, they go to Thailand and they begin to advise the rescuers, but they were the ones with their expertise that actually had to make their way to the boys. And you can see some of the pictures, literally where they come up out of the water and there the boys are on that mound trying to survive. The rescue was full of miracles. I mean, it took a week to find them. The biggest miracle was getting them out of the cave. But I want you to hear just all the, all the people that were involved. We're told that there were 10,000 people that worked in coordination for the rescue of these 13 people. 2,000 Thai soldiers, 100 divers, 100 government agencies, a dozen countries, 5,000 Thai workers and volunteers. And there were really four special groups that worked together. So of these 5,000 Thai workers and volunteers, they worked really hard to divert water away from the mountain so it wouldn't seep further into the cave. And they worked to have the water pumped out of the cave to make the rescue easier. The United States military was involved. Air Force pararescue team was there and they were, they were really coordinating this entire thing. You have Thai Navy SEALs that once the boys were found on, on the seventh day, Thai Navy SEALs went into the cave and stayed with them and cared for them and fed them and gave them medical care. When the Thai SEALs actually died as he tried to exit the cave because he ran out of oxygen when he was underwater. But then there were also these expert cave divers. As I said, most of them were from England, but one of them, <clears throat> a friend, a contemporary of, of these English divers, was an Australian anesthesiologist. This is amazing. So they convince him to come. And they know that the boys cannot mentally survive the three-hour swim out of the cave. Two and a half miles, three hours, and pitch dark. So the plan is, is they're going to anesthetize the boys. They're going to knock them out. And they're going to swim them from one cavern to another. And then they're going to give them another dose of anesthesia to keep them asleep. And then they're going to swim them to the next cavern. And they did this one at a time. And it took three days, three different shifts of swimming these boys out of the cave. But all 12 boys and their coach were rescued. It's amazing. 
an amazing story. The world watched and the world prayed. And thousands of people helped. It's a miracle. I think someday when we're with the Lord in heaven, we're going to look back on our life. We're going to look back on the lives of other people. And he's going to show us a story like this. Like, look at all the things I did. Look at all the people involved in your life to bring the rescue about. To save you. To save them. He's going to show us of all the people who prayed. He's going to show us how all of our prayers worked in some mysterious way with the power of God to bring about a rescue in people's life. That's why we pray the prayer of renewal. Over and over again, when they're trying to figure out how to get the boys out, they said it's not possible. Even when they came up with this plan, they thought it was really unlikely the boys would make it, but they're saying the same thing over and over again. It's not possible. It's not possible. We pray because it is possible that God can save. And so Elijah had this high view of God, the power of God to work. Here's the last thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice that prayer, the prayer of renewal often takes time. Sometimes God will do something amazing in a moment. There are people in this room, they have a story like, hey, the first time I ever heard it, I trusted, something amazing happened, God got my attention, I've never been the same. Most of the rest of us, we kind of discovered faith as time went on. And we kind of struggle along in our faith to have our lives changed. But this is why we pray over and over again. So if you continue on in the story, in verse 41, it says this, and Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink. In other words, have a celebration for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went out to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, which is a mountain in Israel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. And you know what he's doing? He's praying. He's praying for the rain. And if you keep reading in the story, he sends a servant to go look uh, to, to the west off of Mount Carmel to see if there are clouds forming. He sends them there seven times. And the first six times, the, the, the servant comes back and says, there, there's only a small cloud. There certainly isn't rain clouds. And what is Elijah doing? He's praying. He keeps praying. And it's significant that we're told that he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. So I'm no gymnast, but there's only a couple ways to do that. You either standing, just kind of bend down and lean over and put your head between your knees, or you sit down and you lean forward with your head between your knees, which many commentators say is a picture of labor, bringing life into the world. I wonder if God gave us that detail just to say, you know what, there's a type of prayer that needs to, types of prayer that lead to new life. Elijah was contending, he was laboring in prayer for the rain to come. Verse 45, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab on his way to Jezreel, which is a great little detail. He beat him. He beat him in the race. He's in a chariot. Elijah runs, because God filled him with power. So look, God renews a nation with water, but first he renews their souls. Their hearts are turned towards him. But Elijah's prayer, he's up on the top of the mountain alone. Once again, Elijah prays alone and he keeps praying. God may 
uh, put on your heart to pray for a person one time. God may put it on your heart to pray for someone seven times. God may put it on your heart to pray for years for someone. It's like the question that, that Jesus was asked, how often do I need to forgive? And the old, the old way of thinking was just seven times, and Jesus said, no, it's 70 times seven. And he's not giving us a magic number. He's saying, you pray for as long as it takes, or you repent, or you forgive as much that it, as, as needed. So you pray as long as it takes. And sometimes it takes years. But we, put, we pray with spiritual perspective and we pray with a high view of the power of God to work in people's lives. And we have this raw determination to keep praying and to keep praying and to keep praying. I'll tell you one quick story. Worship team, you guys can come out. You know, our country has been shaped by the prayers of people and it still is today. And... Uh, there have been certain times in American history where the country was just renewed in certain ways and social, social change happened or people experienced greater freedom. And one of these moments certainly was in the middle of the 1800s when we went through the Civil War. It was a terrible war, but slavery ended and the country was moving forward in a different direction. But did you know that before all of that happened, there was a prayer revival that took place? And you can look it up today. Many people refer to it as the businessman or the businesswoman prayer revival. Started in New York City. Every day between 12 and 1, following the stock market crash, a few businessmen would get together and pray. After a few weeks, it grew to dozens of businessmen praying. Within a few more weeks, there were hundreds of men and women together praying. There's accounts in East Coast cities of fire stations being opened up to these prayer meetings because they were the only buildings big enough to hold all the people who were there to pray. It started small and it grew. Made it to Philadelphia, made it to Boston. Prayer movements among police officers and firefighters in different places. In the Midwest among farmers and bankers, and it made its way through the entire country. It's the first revival that has made its way from the East Coast all the way through the West Coast. F the first full revival uh, across all of America. Prayers for God's renewal. And people just kept praying, and guess what happened? Things were changing. Phoebe Palmer, who was credited as one of the energizers of this incredible revival that, that can't be manufactured. People don't do this. They don't pray during their lunch hour because they have to. They're hungry and they're compelled. She said this about God's nature to save. She says, earnest prayers, long fasting, and burning tears may seem befitting, but cannot move the heart of an infinite love to a greater willingness to save. In other words, God uses our prayers, but he doesn't need them to be convinced. God is committed. God's time is now. The question is not, what have I been or what do I expect to be, but what am I now trusting in Jesus to save to the utmost? If so, I am now saved from all sin. God's time is now. So even though it takes a while to pray sometimes and we wait and we wait and we wait, we hold in tension with that thought that God's time of salvation is right now. So I just want to motivate you to keep praying for those in your life. 
pray as long as it takes. Let God give you perspective to keep praying. Raw determination to keep praying. May give you faith to trust in his power that no one is too far from God. God loves answering the prayers of renewal. He loves bringing about new life. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the greatest story ever told. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that Jesus died and rose again. We thank you that he's active today through the Holy Spirit and he's pursuing people everywhere. We thank you how you've got our attention, how you've turned our hearts towards you. We thank you for the gift of repentance. We thank you for the joy that comes from knowing you and we ask that that would spread. And so we pray for those in our life that they may come to know you. We pray that you would work in their life. We thank you for the providence of God. And we ask that you would use everything that a person has experienced to bring them into relationship with you. May they find the joy of your salvation. Father, we thank you for the many ways you work. And as it says in Zephaniah, our God is mighty to save. We say that today. Remind us of that, Lord, as we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.